Are evolutionists a bit short-sighted? <laughs> Welcome to Answers News for Monday, November 14, 2022. My name is Dr. Georgia Prudham. I'm joined by Patricia Engler and Rocket Rob Webb. And today we're going to be discussing the great complexity of the human eye from a biblical perspective, in addition to some other news stories. But first, we're going to start off with visualizing the evolution of vision and the eye. Okay. Now, I always find this fascinating whenever they try to explain the evolution of the eye, because it is, obviously the eye is a very, very complex thing. And it was one of the things that Darwin even said, like he, he couldn't imagine how you could explain the evolution of it. Now, not that he doubted <laughs> that it evolved, but it was hard for him to imagine to seeing even, not just the human eye, but the eyes of other organisms. How could something this complex that allows our brains to see everything in full color for human beings, how could that have evolved? Now, like I say, evolution has, evolutionists have developed, and I, I use this term realistically, stories to tell us exactly how that happened. Yeah, I remember as a student going through my science degree and opening up my textbook and they have these really nice, like pretty illustrations like you have in this article showing all these little stages of supposed eye evolution. So what they've done is they've, they've looked across um, all the animals that exist basically and seen what kind of eyes they have and then they organize them from simple to complex, so-called simple, even like the very most simple ones are extremely complex. but. Then they say, like, this is how we know it evolved. And that's just a direct, what we call an appeal to possibility fallacy. So you're saying something could have happened this way, therefore it did happen this way, but it's actually not even true that it could have happened that way because we don't actually have a mechanism for creating those new types of eyes in the first place. Yeah, I think it was in 1859, Darwin proposed by natural selection, he said that future research would show that eyes evolved from simple to complex. But really today, we know that eyes are far more complex, even the so-called simple ones, like you were saying, they're way more complex than Darwin could have ever ima imagined. I actually looked it up. Just the human eye has 137 million light-sensitive cells that sends messages to your brain. So it basically takes these electric pulses, and then your brain's able to interpret it uh, essentially seeing these pictures of the world, they said that 1.5 million messages per millisecond. I mean, just as, as an engineer, I was in the aerospace industry for about 10 years, so I'm used to making things, making designs and systems. Man has never developed a camera that even comes close to how complex the eye is, and just let alone the simple eye like they were talking about. So that's why the, uh, within the evolutionary story, they're struggling to come up with this, this story to explain where the eye came from, rather than going back to the biblical worldview, which says that God, our all-seeing God, created the eye. And and I was going to say, too, you know, one of the things that they talk about in this article is I always look at what verbs are they using to describe how the eye evolved. And um, so they'll say things like, well, it evolved. And they'll say things like, and pupils arose to help improve the focus of light on the retina. Okay, arose. <laughs> right, what does that mean, right? I mean, I'm a biologist, I'm a geneticist, so what does that look like from a genetic or biological perspective? How does something arise, right? And so for evolutionists, really the two main mechanisms they have are random mutation and natural selection. That is how everything came into existence. And so they would say the same is true for that. But it just amazes me how when, when you read these things, they don't really tell you anything. They don't really tell you the biological mechanism for how something this complex, and we know from studying mutations and natural selection in the present, they don't do what evolution needs them to do, right? They don't 
they don't add things, they don't make things better, mm -hmm. they just make things worse, right? We get cancer, we get disease, things like that. So they don't really have a good explanation for this. And right? not only do you have to explain using these mechanisms how you could get something that complex, but it also they think would have had to happen multiple different times because you have these complex eyes and all sorts of lineages that are not considered closely related. So it's not just evolving the eye once, it's getting this multiple times over, like upwards of 40, so. Obviously, we don't see eye to eye with these evolutionists. It's what it comes I was, down to. I was oh. waiting for some kind of time. I had, I had to throw it, it out there. would come there somewhere. Well, yeah. they even said at one point, our understanding of the evolution of the compound eye, so that's like the eye that they find in flies, is a bit murky. I would say it's a bit fuzzy. I see what ah. you did there. Oh, I got that one. Boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they do talk about how, like, it, it's funny because it's like, okay, so what's next in the evolution of the eye, like for human beings, because we have all this tech that we're using, and how might the eye evolve again. Well, the example that they use, <laughs> they say, well, one thing we're noticing is there's a lot of myopia that's developing in children, which is the inability to see far away. And that's I'm thinking, yeah. how is that helpful? Like, how is that a good thing that's happening, right? That's a bad thing. Yeah. That's not an evolution into something new and yeah. better. It's getting worse, right? And so, um, so they don't, I don't think they use a very good example. <laughs> no, especially no, because no. It, they said that the myopia is from looking at screens, which is something that's not genetic. So you're not going to pass that on exactly. to your kids anyway. Yeah. So it can't be evolution no matter which way you slice mm -hmm. it, really. Yeah, it was great because I was reading this article really close, you know. I was like thinking, oh, I wonder if this is <laughs> happening to my eye right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. But in the end, they don't, they don't really give any. All they do is have some nice pictures. And, and mm -hmm. you really have to, when you see things like that, you've got a question, right? How do they know? What yep. is the mechanism they're proposing from going to one to the other? Because it looks really maybe simplistic when you look at it that way. But in reality, when you think about all the genetic changes, all the chemical changes, everything that would be necessary for that to happen, it's just not possible, right, for that to happen by random chance, even if you gave it lots of time. Because, again, mutations and natural selection don't do what the evolutionists need them to do. So this is a fantasy story. It is, yeah. And, and it's sure. impossible, like we were saying, the evolutionary worldview. Whereas the biblical worldview, Proverbs 20.12 says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So that's right. what we need to base yep. ourselves on. Definitely. Okay. Can churches balance diversity, inclusion with being biblical, spirit-filled? No, let's move on. <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, but it depends on what do you mean? You know, we always ask that question. What do you mean by diversity and inclusion? Okay, mm -hmm. so that becomes the that becomes really the importance. And this article is specifically focusing on the United Methodist Church, which has ha seen a lot of controversy over the past several years on the issue of homosexuality and transgender, and it is getting to the point where the church, um, quite a few of the individual uh, local churches have left the denomination as a whole over these issues. Yeah, I was thinking even just like, if we look at the book of Revelation, you can see it talks about a couple of different types of diversity happening mm -hmm. in churches. So that's what mm -hmm. we kind of need to pay attention to, going back to defining your terms. So in Revelation, I believe it's seven, it talks about how people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be worshiping together in heaven. So churches with cultural diversity actually reflect a little bit of heaven on earth, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. But then back in Revelation two, it talks about um, churches that have people who hold to teachings that promote the practice 
of sexual immorality, and Jesus said he actually held that against those churches. So there is a, a biblical kind of diversity and a non-biblical kind of diversity that are both seen within those churches in Revelation. Yeah, I think you nailed it perfectly. It's not that we deny diversity, but we need to define our terms correctly. We need to define it according to biblical standards, because again, it goes back to what standard, right? So, and like we say here all the time, we need to be speaking the truth in love, right? We, we can't be separating those two things, and we have to remember um, Colossians 2a as well, which says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And really, if you think about it, you know, what's the most loving thing that we can do for, for our, our neighbors? It's to point them to the living truth, to point them to Jesus Christ. And that's, that's really how we can have everlasting love and reconciliation and peace with them. One past theologian even said this, peace is not to be purchased by the sacrifice of truth. So we need to be standing on truth, standing on biblical authority, not compromising with the world. That's what we're seeing over and over again with these churches. They're caving to these social pressures because they want to be more inclusive. They want to be more loving. And you have to just think back, what's the most loving thing that we can do? We can point them to the hope of the gospel. And, you know, Jesus wants us, I mean, that we talk about, you know, people come as you are. Yes, come as you are, but not stay as you are, <laughs> right? I mean, with the, with the woman who was caught in adultery, mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus said, I, you know, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more, right? Okay. Don't keep doing what you're doing. He wanted her to change. We're to be mm-hmm. transformed by the renewing of our mind, yeah. right? Not to stay as we are. Or to turn and so away that's, from sin. that's really the key with this and, and the problem. And, you know, when you read about, like, there was the Illinois Great Rivers Conference, which is part of the UMC, they certified the first openly gay man and the first drag queen to be a pastor in a church. Yeah. I just, you know, it's just hard to fathom that these things are going on and why we, again, need to continue to stand on the authority and truthfulness of God's word because this is not part of the diversity that we should be allowing in the church. Yeah, the, the Bible makes it abundantly clear over and over, ago, and over again, there is no neutrality. It's either Christ or chaos, and that's what we're seeing. All of these churches that are caving in, they're leading into that chaotic kind of nature. We're, like we were saying, drag queens are now being pastors. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Drag queens are now being pastors. They're now leading congregations. And so that's what happens when you abandon God's word. You abandon biblical authority. Really, anything goes. That's what we say all the time here, like, like the time of judges, you know, when there is no king in Israel, man does whatever is right in his own eyes. And so he comes up with his own standard. He elevates his own thoughts above God's infallible word. Okay, um, so in a kind of related article, sports star jailed 10 months for transphobic message that God created Adam and Eve. So um, this is about, I'm gonna make sure I get his name right. Oh, pronouncing this may not be good, but he's a Greek soccer legend or football legend, but we would call it soccer. Yep. Uh, Vasalis. Football, Sorry. is that how they say it? Uh, T-S-I-A-R-T-A-S. <laughs> I won't even pronounce, pronounce, try to pronounce that. Say but, that 10 times fast. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> he had a couple Facebook posts in which he quoted um, Genesis 127 and was, and was helping people understand that this is um, the definition, you know, of marriage. This is the definition of gender. You know, these are, this is the basis, the foundation by which we need to say what is happening in the culture right now is wrong. And for that, he received a 10-month suspended prison sentence and a suspended fine of 5,000 euros. So what does that mean, like, as far as, I know you were looking into that a little bit. So from how I've heard it explained as a suspended sentence is you're not in jail, but you're kind of in this stage that if you say anything during that time, you will go to jail for 
for the rest of that. So it's almost kind of like when Daniel heard about that law that you weren't allowed to pray. It was like that. So you can get, you can not be in trouble so long as you do exactly what they tell you to do. Yeah. And sadly, this is happening all over the world right now. It's not just in Greece. And really, this is only going to get worse. I mean, over, over the years, unless we push back, it's only going to get worse. We need to make sure that we're preparing ourselves, equipping ourselves against this attack. And I just think about so much for the tolerance that they always keep saying, right? We just want to have tolerance for our beliefs. But really, are they being tolerating of our beliefs then? Obviously not. And so you think about it, it's really like just the modern-day blasphemy laws. If you speak against that, it's like, kind of like their sacred cow that they've tried to elevate. Um, um, and what I've noticed, what was interesting in this article, basically they say that you know Christians, they have the right to practice their faith, but only if it does not conflict with the rights of others, such as LGBTQ provisions. Now, first off, I want to say that rights are actually a Christian concept. You can't get rights from any other worldview. It's only found in the Bible. It's only found, like we were saying, Genesis 1.27. That's where we get our inherent rights and values from. But you think about it, when they say that you can only practice your faith as long as it doesn't conflict with others, that's basically a sneaky way of saying you can't. You can't practice your faith. Because if you think about it, if you can't practice your faith, you need to be... Um, as standing on God's word, we need to be pointing people to the truth. And so that's part of practicing our faith. We, we want to be able to proclaim the faith. So if we can't proclaim the faith, we're not actually practicing our faith to begin with. So you see that over and over again. So to make sure you're just aware of that. For sure. And it does go back, like you can see this in history. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he was a philosopher um, back in the 1700s. And he was basically saying exactly that in his like ideas of how what he called the social contract should work. So it's this whole totalitarian thing where you have religious freedom and tolerance so long as the state is the ultimate authority for truth. So the state is basically functioning as, as God and as the basis for whatever human rights it decides to make up, but they're arbitrary, they're not real rights. And then you can see this in different times when persecution has arisen in history, even like what we, we have been chatting about a little bit earlier, back even in the Roman times in the early church, you could be a Christian, so to speak, so long as you still did the emperor worship that they Hence were asking the incense, you to. the Caesar is what, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so long as their truth is the ultimate truth, you're allowed to do whatever you want. But right. that, that does lead to Christian persecution for those who actually stand on God's word. So then you end up seeing um, a split between this official church that's going along with what the culture says and then kind of an underground church. And we are starting to see this again, like what we were talking about in the last article. Yep. That's and I really what liked all what one of the people that was defending the soccer player said um, when talking about Genesis 127, she said, which he quoted, it is fundamental to establishing, in other words, Genesis 127 is, the dignity of every human person, but is, in a bizarre, ironic twist, being branded as incompatible with that dignity. Yes, I mean, the reason that, again, the only reason that we can say that, the, uh, talk about the sanctity of human life and the value of human life it comes from God's word. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. There's no ultimate answer to that. But when you start with God's word, you have that ultimate foundation for saying that. So in essence, he's really trying to give dignity and value to human beings and saying, because they are made in the image of God, we need to value marriage, the definition of marriage, according to God. We need to value the definition of gender according to God. You know, that values and dignifies the person most, not what society says, not what they're trying to do by change things and, and redefine things. And so, um, so I'm, I'm glad that, you know, it, it's sad to see this over and over again and why we need to continue to fight for our rights to speak these truths because they will eventually be taken away. But let's try to st say them for as long as we can, possibly can, in the world that we live in. That's what we need to do. So. Amen to that. Okay. Kind of, this is kind of a fun 
biology story, <laughs> I guess you could call it. Juvenile bird accidentally breaks record for longest nonstop flight on its first attempt. Okay, so this is a five-month-old bar-tailed godwit uh, who flew 265 hours and basically more than eight thousand miles between yeah. Alaska and Tasmania. That poor bird. <laughs> <laughs> and this Super is and th these birds don't glide. Okay? Yeah. They are active flyers, which means yeah. they must always flap. Nonstop flapping for eleven days and what one a hour straight. <laughs> That's a pretty good workout. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was really funny that um, the reason it did make this record-breaking flight is because it got a little bit off track and then had to kind of reset. So I just yeah. really empathize with that because I don't have an internal GPS. Like, at least it knew which direction, yeah. like, south <laughs> or east or whatever it's supposed to be going yeah. is. I don't know. Yeah, the bird just winged it, I think, as it was trying to go. Oh. And so, I don't know. That just flew over your guys' yeah. head, huh? <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> no, I just love the scientific analysis here. Experts suspect that this navigational mishap was caused in part because the bird had no idea where it was headed. But I it mean, did have an idea where it's headed. I'm always like, at least it knew to fly south, right? Yeah. It knew the general direction which to fly. And you think about the dumb luck of evolution that produced that, right? It's able to just know exactly where to go. I think, right. I yeah. mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Well, I did find a quote because I was trying to see what is kind of the story behind it. And it turns out that you need a lot of like complex kind of genetic um, underlying mechanisms to be able to do this kind of flying. So they were talking about, I found one study that said it's um, that important genetic features for my migrations have remained latent among birds since early times. In other words, they've just always, always been it. there, um, the never disappearing, but yeah, there. becoming activated or suppressed um, as mm -hmm. their lifestyle changes happen, which actually fits what a biblical worldview would say really well, that God designed things with incredible mm -hmm. genetic potential, and then we see it um, being uh, suppressed or reactivated at different times, but it's still there, so you do, you're not actually evolving something new. Yeah, it's just amazing design of, of God through it all. That's yeah, pretty, and these birds, cool. I mean, you got to consider, I mean, they've never made this flight before. No one's there training them or teaching them. Their parents fly off before they do um, because they want the, the younger birds to build up more fat. So they don't even have their parents to guide them there. So it's amazing to think about that. And um, they only, they never thought these birds could go like that far. And I think, again, it explains the resilience of these birds that God has built into them, a very robust design to be able to adapt and live in a, in a fallen world, because with evolutionary thinking, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have evolved, in other words, something more than it needed, because it's hard enough mm -hmm. to evolve That's it in the first point. place, okay? Mm -hmm. So it would have been just what it needed, but yet this, this speaks of a great engineer, right, and a great designer that designed it even above. It's, it's just what it needed, but even more than that, to be able to help it live in this in the world that's constantly changing. Yeah, they so. they said they previously assumed that nonstop flappers were pushing themselves to the absolute limit during their mammoth migrations, but the new finding shows they can go even farther than expected. So yep, yeah, there, there you go. That's just amazing. Cool. Good for the bird. All right. Yeah, I'm glad the bird made it. <laughs> Planets around graveyard star were consumed before Earth was even born. All right, so <laughs> Rocket Rob Webb here loves to talk about yeah, astronomy I stuff. Like space so stuff. that's why we chose this article because this is a lot of storytelling oh, too, yeah, just like the evolution of the eye. So why don't you explain it, Rob? Yeah, I, I just wrote on here once upon a time, you know, dot, dot, <laughs> dot. Um, and just so everyone know, uh, didn't actually eat the planets, right? So don't get any bright ideas about that. Give it stars, bright ideas. Never mind. 
All right, so yeah, there's, there's lots of storytelling in here. There's actually a lot of inconclusive findings. Essentially what they did is they found a white dwarf star uh, about 90 light years away. And for those that don't know what white dwarf stars are, they're essentially these really small, compact, very high density, high gravity kind of stars. Um, uh, they say that they're the remnants of, of dead stars that no longer have the nuclear fusion. Um, so they, they basically have a lot of evolutionary assumptions, basically saying that because of its cold temperature, its uh, temperature is around 3,000 Kelvin. And just for reference, white dwarfs are normally around 10,000 Kelvin. So it's definitely a, a colder by relative standard uh, white dwarf. And essentially what they found was a lot of elements such as sodium, lithium, potassium, and carbon in the spectral signature of the light coming from the star. And they're trying to figure out where these elements came from. So their theory, what they proposed is that maybe this star during its early stages basically consumed all the planetary debris around it in order to get all those elements. And I actually talked to our resident Danny, uh, resident astronomer Danny Faulkner on this just to kind of get his um, opinion on it to see if we agreed. And he agrees that it's definitely possible that that's this White dwarf star definitely does have these elements. That's good observational science. That's what we say all the time, observing things in the present, actually studying the composition of these stars. But then once you go beyond that, you know, trying to figure out how it got the elements, now you're going into what's called historical science. You're trying to come up with an origin story to try to explain your findings for today. So um, and essentially what Danny said is it's a lot of storytelling, a lot of hand-waving. doesn't really make a lot of sense. And they even admit it in this, in this article, too. They say... Um, that they basically fail to produce a scenario within even their own model. So, so it's, just, it's just funny. Like, a lot of these times you see these titles, they're very clickbaity, right? So you actually, but you actually read the article, and they didn't really find or say anything that actually related to the title itself. So, um, yeah, I think bottom line is that's just um, another star that was created on day four by, by God for his glory. That's what it was. Yep, for sure. And I thought it was interesting. Sort of like what you said is it has this stated very clearly in the title, like this is what we know happened. But then when you actually read the article, <laughs> it's more clear that they really don't. Yeah. And yeah. even just the idea of the age scale going on here, so like millions of years, billions of years, um, they were saying then that estimating the temperature of these stars and thus their age, because you can't just look at a star and say like, oh yeah, so that mm -hmm. one is millions of years old. No, you're looking yeah. at like where, um, kind of the different types of lights yeah, coming in. Yeah, there's no label in. or a tag no, attached to it. That'd you know? be convenient. Yeah, yeah. but it's um, it, <laughs> You're looking at the types of light, and then you're making calculations based on that, and then uh, estimating the age based on certain assumptions that go into it. Yeah. And they said that estimating the temperature and thus their age is challenging because a recent study has shown quite conclusively that previously classified ultra-cool white dwarf stars are actually significantly warmer. So basically, the methods that they use to try to determine the age mm -hmm. doesn't work. Yeah. And then I know I, when I read that, I was like, wait a minute. So you just killed your own they contradict <laughs> idea that you just yeah. said that, well, we think it's this old, yeah. but well, we found out that really the assumption that we're using for that invalidates the age that we just gave it. Okay. Yeah, it really doesn't work. And then they're saying it's likely to have gotten these um, elements from consuming planetary debris, but you just went from stating it as a fact in the headline to a possibility in the actual article. And then, like and then Rob said... they go said, on to say they couldn't <laughs> even reproduce it in their own model. Saying so. that they couldn't even make it work based on what we know about planets, <laughs> so at least within our solar one. system. So, so yeah, yeah it was, it's kind of a headline that has no justification within the article, yeah. but it makes you want to click on it. Yeah. So that's why kind it's important weird, to look at the actual article and not just depend on the title, yeah. because a lot of times when you when you kind of look beneath the surface, it's like, oh, there really isn't anything to that. Yeah. So. yeah. All right. Yeah. 
I don't believe in God. Congressman's new proclamation sparks secularist claim. Others in Congress will be following in his footsteps. So this is about Jared Huffman, who's um, a California uh, representative, and he was speaking at the Freedom From Religion Foundation. So shock of all shocks, um, mm -hmm. he said, because uh, they knew when they invited him uh, what he was going to say, basically, that he believes he, that he is the token humanist in Congress yeah. and that um, he wants to help other people that identify as non-religious. Now, Here's the important thing to remember. No one is non-religious, okay? Everyone is religious. Religion is a set of beliefs and values that you have. So even atheism is a religion. It's a belief that there is no God, okay? So that, so we need to understand that when people say, well, I don't want your religion or, you know, that's being too religious. Everybody's, everybody's religious. Everybody has that um, set of beliefs and values. And so that is going to inform then, because one of the things he said was that, well, I don't believe my religion is all that important to the people I represent. And I'm like, well, it should be, right? Because um, how you believe reflects in how you lead and what you do. And so if it isn't important, that's a shame, right? But Because but, it should be. Yeah, so what's something that we say all the time, like Georgia was saying, you know, it's, it's everyone's religious. And when someone says that they're non-religious, that's just a fancy way of saying that they're a humanist. And what that means is you elevate your own opinion, your own thoughts above God and his word to be able to determine right from wrong, morality, and all these different things. And um, that's why I, I thought it was so interesting in here. Uh, basically, this, um, they were basically saying, promoting public policy formed on the basis of reason and science and moral values. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, where do you get these values from? You, you don't get them from a humanistic, atheistic worldview. You only get that from the biblical worldview, only by the Bible. Because you think about it, you know, reason and knowledge and logic, those are non-material things. But in the material universe, you can't have those things. So essentially what they're doing is they're secretly borrowing that stuff from the biblical worldview and then using it against us. So that's what, that's what we're seeing over and over again. And I did like the fact that he said at the end here, um, basically, that there are more members of Congress who hold the same view as tens of millions of Americans about the non-existence of God. And it just reminded me, he's right about that. America is becoming less Christian every day. Every single year, we're becoming less and less Christian. And that's because we've lost our foundation, really. That's built on the Bible, built on Genesis. We're seeing more and more generations being told that they don't need to believe every single word that's in here, that they can, they can choose right and wrong based on their own standards, elevating, again, man's word over God's word. And that's what we're seeing. It's just another reminder that we need to get back to biblical authority and base ourselves, all of our thinking, on God's word and God's word alone. Yeah, for sure. And you can see in history, too, when people have taken this direction and said, oh, well, we can make up our own morals and values and, and try to borrow that from theism, but just base it on, say, like a supreme being or something like that. That's what the guys in the French Revolution tried to do, ended horribly. They were, and they were able to redefine morality such that they were able to kill everybody who disagreed with them, basically. Yeah. So it's something really to be praying about. And also, we can pray for this congressman and, and the other people that he was talking yeah, about, because be that is, this. when Absolutely. we read these kinds of things, it's easy just to be like, oh, no, but it's actually, we can use it as a reminder to pray for them, and that will really have a significant uh, impact if we do that faithfully. That's, that's a good point.
Yeah. And the importance of and knowing who candidates are and voting as much as possible according to a biblical worldview and voting for those that align with biblical values as much as possible. Like that's our civic duty as Christian. Um, we want to see those, I want to see those people in office, not people like this, um, that are clearly not gonna be representative of me. And so, um, but one of the things too, like you were talking a little bit, but that he talks about public policy being formed on the basis of reason, science, and moral values. And when you read that, again, moral values, according to who? And if you're not starting with the Bible, then it's completely arbitrary, yeah, right? It's standard? up to each person to decide. And in an atheistic, humanistic worldview, everything has to be material. There's nothing that's immaterial. Well, reason and values and morals are immaterial. So how do you even, how do you even account for those in that worldview, right? And so again, they, they can never be consistent. That's one of the things you always see. Uh, like I say, they're having to borrow from scripture. They're having, to, even though they would never admit that, um, to be able to use those terms and use them um, to have some kind of meaning, you have to start with God's word, so. It just, it just proves that they're made in the image of God because they're crying out for these values. They can't escape it. Being made in the image of God, living in God's created world, they can't escape these values. So they have to have those. They have, they have to borrow them. And so we're seeing that over and over again. Okay. Um, so some really good news. Major U.S. Yeah. city coughs up $2 million for trying to kill the Christian flag. So this actually occurred in Boston where they had a flagpole that they would allow to fly basically any flag that wanted to be flown. So that they had other flagpoles there, but that one was designated for whoever. So they had flown the pride flag. They, of course, they had flown um, some other flags from other countries. And so when they, when a group wanted to have the Christian flag flown, they said no. Well, that's viewpoint discrimination and that's a problem. And I am so thankful that the U.S. Supreme Court in a unanimous decision, yeah, nine to zero. shock of all shocks, yeah. right, said <laughs> that is clear discrimination. You can't do that. If it's open to anyone, then it's truly open to anyone, yeah, regardless of their, their religious their religious views. Yeah, we wanted to make sure we ended this uh, this segment on, on, on a good point. So, And they said they wanted to fly the Christian flag in honor of Constitution Day, which makes sense because the Constitution is built on Christian biblical principles. So that was a great win. Yep. Um, and you, if you just think about it, you know, like what's the reason why they want to censor the Christian flag rather than maybe the pride flag we were talking about? Because you think about the pride flag, um, obviously that had no issues. And, and even the whole pride movement is built on a religion, like we were saying in the, in the previous article, you know, everyone's religious and, and having that pride flag, that rainbow flag is, is, is built on the humanistic religion. And of course they have no problem with that, but they have a problem with the Christian flag. Why? Because they hate God. They ultimately are haters of God. They were, they're in rebellion against their creator. You see, like the, the Bible says, every single person knows God exists in their heart of hearts, yet they suppress that in their unrighteousness. That's why we're seeing that over and over again. It's not that they want to be neutral. It's because they hate God. And they don't want him in their lives because it's the same way like, like a criminal doesn't want to see a cop. You know, it's, it's because of their sin. They love the darkness and hate the light, lest their deeds be exposed is what the Bible says. Yeah, it shows you that it's uh, not really diversity that's of interest here. I was just kind of smiling to myself because I can't say, you, you called a flag? Can yeah, I even say flag? Yeah, I was flag? wondering about that. Flag, yeah. <laughs> pasta too, right? Pasta. Pa pasta. Pa pasta. Pasta is correct, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. It's, a, it's a process to learn such eloquent diction, but one, one of these days. Oh, in the boot. <laughs> All right. Well, we're um, closing out on our time today. So just a few um, things that we wanted to make you aware of. So um, if you're looking for some really good Christmas present ideas with Christmas coming up, mm. we have this new book called Creation Fun with the Grandkids. That's so cool. this is great for grandparents to get to have some activities and things to do um, with their kids. I've read this book personally because I'm part of the review board here, and it is really good and simple things. It's not, you don't have to be a super crafter, okay, to do these things, um, but just fun little things that you you can do with your grandkids to reinforce biblical truths because there's great teaching in it, and so it allows you to do that. Also, we are hiring, okay, especially um, with the Christmas season upon us. We have our Christmas town and Christmas time, and um, those occur in the evenings, and so we always need um, additional help to, for, the, for that time of year, but really all throughout the year, we have a lot of not just seasonal positions, but permanent positions open. And um, it has just been, I've worked here for 16 years and what a pleasure it has been to work in ministry with people that love the Lord. And so encourage you to check out our job on our job site and see if there might be some opportunities for you. Also, we have a couple of resources that we wanted to recommend. Um, the first one, you can quote it. I'll let you be being them right here. <laughs> the first one is the gender and marriage war. So we talked a lot about those topics of transgender, the redefinition of marriage, all those things. So this is really a great book. Lots of short chapters to really give you that vital information on those different topics to really confront what's being said in the culture today. And then we also have um, quick answers oh, to social, social issues, issues, which also covers a lot of those topics, plus a lot more that we didn't get into. But that is actually a great book for teenagers um, to be able to have. Again, it's not a lot of reading. So uh, short answers to those questions. And then lastly, um, Glass House. This is a book, you know, we talked about the evolution of the eye. And so this goes over the common uh, evolutionary myths and um, the problems with them and really looking at that from a biblical worldview, but also a scientific worldview, or not scientific worldview, but the science and showing how the Bible and science, um, again, science supports what the Bible says, confirms, and is consistent with that. And it's that. An easy to understand right. as well, so don't let it scare you. There's not really high level kind no. of technical language in there, it, so yeah. really, I mean, it's, it's junior high, I mean, uh, e easily. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of level. That was the point of it. So yep. anyway. All right. So we're out of time for today. So we'll see you next time. God bless.